Hello, everyone. This is Kelich Kanat, the research director of SETA uh, Foundation in Washington, D.C. Uh, today in Book Talk, we have uh, Nigel Inkster with us. It is his book, uh, The Great Decoupling, uh, China, America, and the Struggle for Technological Supremacy. Uh, Nigel Inkster is senior advisor at International Institute for Strategic Studies and uh, a director of geopolitical and intelligence analysis at Enodo Economics prior to which he worked in the British government dealing with foreign policy and security issues. He is the author of China's Cyber Power. And uh, today we will discuss the, uh, the China-US relations in the context of technology. And this is actually a extremely timely book. And I will ask Nigel actually to tell the story of the book in a minute, but considering the US relations with China, and considering increasing emphasis on technology, both in interim strategic uh, national security strategic guidance and worldwide threat assessment report by have much idea, but apparently it is something extremely significant. And of course, the 5G technologies. In the previous uh, administration, we heard about things like cyber warfare, cyber attacks. But now in the last three months, we have been exposed to a lot of technological concepts. And each and every time uh, the administration is talking about China, they make sure that it is not only an intelligence, political and economic threat, it is also a technological threat, uh, competitor or uh, adversary whatever you want to use. Nigel, uh, please tell us uh, the story of this book. Yeah, well, thank you very much. And thank you very much for uh, inviting me to talk to your um, members today. Um, as you mentioned, this is not the first uh, book on Chinese technology that I've written. Uh, in 2016, I, I produced a book called uh, China's Cyberpower. Um, which looked at that particular uh, area of technology. Um, I hadn't really planned to uh, produce any, uh, anything after that, but uh, I was actually approached by the publisher to do something. And by that point, as you mentioned, a lot of things had moved on. It was already apparent when I wrote my first book that relations between China and the USA which had always been more fragile than sometimes um, you know, was acknowledged, uh, had deteriorated quite, quite dramatically. Um, I remember noting this um, at the beginning of 2018 when I came to the USA to do a talk, to attend a seminar at the US Naval War College. And it was clear to me then that something quite fundamental had changed in the US policy community in relation uh, to China. And that was kind of the beginning of a significant downward shift in relations that, that, that has taken, I, I would argue, the US-China relationship to its lowest level since before the Nixon rapprochement in 1972. And technology writ large has played a, a, a very big role in all of this. And you know that being the case, um, you know my experience has always been in in, in these situations. 
um, they, they, they invite a lot of uh, polemic, um, not all of it particularly well-informed. Um, so I thought that one, one of the important things that this book should try to do was to set what China is currently en embarked upon in the broader uh, historical and cultural context of China as this rather unique civilization. So the early chapters are, are devoted to uh, China's own um, indigenous intellectual um, traditions, which include science and technology. And um, in particular, um, a reminder to readers that China was responsible for probably half of all the world's um, engineering uh, inventions, um, including the ones that made possible the Western-led um, age of exploration uh, in the um, uh, 16th century. Um, but for all its technological ingenuity, which is very uh, extensive, and I give uh, plenty of plentiful examples uh, in the book, I think that it's true to say that China never succeeded in developing a real culture of science. Um, and you know, this, as defined by Professor Joseph Needham, who wrote a multi-volume history of China's science and technology, uh, was defined by him as the application of mathematical hypotheses to nature, the full understanding and use of experimental method, the distinction between primary and secondary qualities, the geometrization of space, and the acceptance of a mechanical model of reality. To that, I would argue, add um, um, a point made by my former tutor at Oxford University, Dr. Mark Elvin, who wrote uh, a very brilliant um, ecological history of China on which I drew, which was essentially that the Chinese never developed the concept of a fact um, as a kind of publicly accessible um, approximation of reality that could be subject to change and evolution in the light of experience, and which was kind of broadly um, accepted. That, that kind of never happened. Anyway, the bottom line in all of this was that although in the late 18th, early 19th century, China was um, a very uh, consequential global uh, civilization and as a country was well administered and prosperous. Um, it was also highly vulnerable in the face of uh, Western nations um, equipped with superior capabilities due to the industrial revolution. So when the West came knocking on China's door in the um, early um, 19th century, uh, looking uh, to um, in greatly increase trade, um, China took the view that um, the world was divided into you know, two. One was the Sinosphere, which was civilized, and, and, and the rest, which was basically barbarians, and these included the Westerners. And in many respects, um, the Westerners 
um, kind of earned um, China's uh, assessment as being um, very uncouth and uh, uncivilized, but they had uh, modern warships, modern artillery, breech-loading uh, firearms for which China was no match. And so essentially overnight, China went from being a huge um, civilization, you know, a, 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 a long and ancient and major civilization that saw itself as literally the center of the world. You know, the name China, Zhongguo, means literally the center of the world. It went overnight from being kind of hero to zero, um, disparaged and decried in Western media as an irremediably backward, superstitious place um, that, that, that was kind of ripe for the plucking and which over the course of the 19th century was turned into a kind of semi-colonial possession of, of the Western powers with over 40 um, so-called concessions, areas of territory, um, which were occupied by, by and, and administered by Western countries and in which China, Chinese were second-class citizens. And all of this sparked a kind of major uh, crisis of identity um, and the search for a modern identity with a distinctly Chinese civilizational character, which has driven pretty much everything China has done ever since and is very much at the heart of what China is trying to do now. And unless people understand this background, um, it's going to be very difficult to make sense of what China is doing and why. You know, why is it that China feels this burning need to, um, um, in, in, you know, to use the Chinese word, gan chao, catch up with and surpass the West? You know, and, and this, this has really been what China's been trying to do, as I said, ever since the West uh, kicked, um, kicked its door in. Um, I mean, at the outset, um, the response of China's intelligentsia was um, predictably uh, diverse. Some people argued for a, a doubling down on traditional Chinese culture. Others uh, sought a kind of hybrid model. Others advocated for a wholesale rejection of Chinese uh, civilization and an embrace of, of Western uh, modernity. Uh, and, and, and these you know, um, intellectual trends um, ha, ha, have you know, continued to play out in, in, in China today. If we look at uh, the kind of ideology that, 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 that Beijing uh, currently uh, espouses. Um, China's efforts to modernize were complicated and prolonged by some very difficult uh, geopolitics. Um, and when the People's Republic of China was finally established in 1949, following a four-year civil war, um, the country was pretty much on its knees um, and was then plunged into a succession of political movements because under Mao Zedong, um, class struggle was the main priority. Um, and to use Mao's own terms, redness was preferred over expertise. 
um, educated people, scientists in particular, were distrusted and disparaged, a trend which reached its uh, you know, apogee during this 10-year period, the Cultural Revolution, which was a kind of collective national nervous breakdown. And, you know, um, emblematic of, 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 of the attitude um, prevailing during that period was the fact that Albert Einstein um, was the subject of uh, political struggle sessions in China because his theory of relativity contradicted uh, a completely unscientific uh, communist assessment of a, a universe that was infinite and, and, and steady state. And actually, if you read uh, The Three-Body Problem, this uh, Chinese um, trilogy uh, of um, science fiction, you will actually see you know, the, 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 this depicted in very graphic terms in the first volume of that, uh, of that trilogy, uh, The Struggle Against Einsteinian Physics. Anyway, when China finally came blinking out into the daylight um, in uh, the late 1970s, the key imperative was to make up for lost time. And the focus was um, unremittingly on economic development. And in this context, China was very lucky, incredibly lucky, because you had a large uh, and actually quite well-educated population, notwithstanding all the Maoist madness, um, that was highly aspirational, that was just you know, ready to take uh, advantage of uh, any opportunities that presented themselves. And of course, as the Cold War came to an end in the late 1980s, early 90s, um, you know, the, 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 this opened the floodgates to um, a globalization process that had been you know, um, in the deep freeze, essentially since the First World War. Um, and China was uniquely positioned to take advantage of that. But, you know, the recognition, even though China at that point was operating on a very, very, you know, technically low base, China's leaders were acutely aware of the role that modern technologies and information communications technologies in particular would play. Um, in, 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 in China's economic development. You know, although you know, back then there, there were no computers and hardly any phone lines, um, thanks to the writings of the American futurologist Alvin Toffler, China's leaders were acutely aware of what they needed to do. And when the ability to do so presented itself, they moved very fast. And what we saw in China was an intriguing combination of a series of top-down government-led initiatives to promote um, the emergence of technology, plus the creation of a highly permissive and cutthroat um, competition between emerging Chinese private sector companies, which the uh, Taiwanese entrepreneur Kai Li Fu um, describes you know, very um, um, you know, um, comprehensively in, in his book, um, the title of which, of course, I conveniently forget at the moment. Um, it, it, it's easy to find. Um, and the, 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 this was, uh, you know, created a remarkable uh, transformation. There were huge risks for China, particularly get with the internet. Uh, they were heavily reliant, almost exclusively reliant to start with on US technology, both hardware and software. 
and they were acutely aware of the potential of the internet to act as a vector for subversion, in, uh, the informa information that would undermine uh, the Chinese Communist Party dominant uh, narrative, um, notwithstanding uh, an awareness of, of those, those risks, you know, they moved ahead. Um, and initially we saw, you know, uh, well, we saw the emergence of, of, of a very uh, close um, interdependence uh, between the USA and China in the technology uh, area. You know, China uh, was the ideal location for the lower end manufacture of um, ICT products. Um, you know, they, they, they had the, you know, the workforce you know, and, and the market conditions, but also, of course, China increasingly and very rapidly became um, an attractive market in its own right as indigenous Chinese capabilities, indigenous Chinese companies developed you know, um, an ambitious and very effective suite of capabilities in terms of e-commerce, e-finance, et cetera, et cetera, that, that were eagerly seized upon um, by, by the population as a whole. And particularly once uh, the smartphone um, came uh, into, in, in, into the equation. Of course, most of these, um, you know, uh, smartphones were being manufactured in China, even though the the design and the IP was uh, closely held uh, back in, in in the United States. Um, you know, the, the the extent of the um, um, entanglement, if you like, between the US and China is evidenced from the fact that for many years, Microsoft Windows XP was the kind of default uh, IT uh, system for use in all Chinese government uh, departments. And when um, the company uh, de decided that they were no longer going to support uh, Windows XP, they had to think again and make an exception for China because not to have done so would have had such major uh, um, implications um, for, for, uh, for, for, for the country. Um, but as China's own capabilities grew, so too did its growing discomfort with a reliance on American technology, particularly after the 2012 Snowden revelations. Um, and so China, you know, by that stage um, had, had already evolved this concept of cyber sovereignty, the idea that, uh, you know, that, that countries should have um, an, an internationally recognized right to police content uh, transiting their, their um, sovereign space. Um, and it was also um, promoting, starting to promote uh, um, indigenous uh, manufacture. Um, and at this point, I think we began to see evidence of real strain uh, in, in, in the US-China relationship in relation to technology, particularly with uh, the promulgation of uh, programs such as Made in China 2025, which sought to, to ensure that by, by that date, 70% uh, of uh, strategically relevant um, uh, products in the IT sector were manufactured within China. Um, I now come to... Um, China's 
uh, the 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 um, the parting of the ways, if you like, between the U.S. Uh, and China. And here there are three key dates. The first was 2001, when China joined the World Trade Organization on developing country terms. And this um, development turbocharged uh, China's uh, economic development, really transformational. Um, but um, the, the decision to allow China, you know, such a large economy, to join on developing country terms, which in many ways made perfect sense, also proved to have some very um, significant complications, which are now becoming apparent. The second key date, I would argue, is 2008, the uh, global financial crisis. China was at least as responsible for this as uh, profligate and irresponsible US bankers, no question about that. Uh, precisely because um, the way it had um, um, played its membership of, of the World Trade Organization with very, very selective opening and uh, keeping a lot of factors in its favor and also developing a huge savings glut, uh, which ultimately be, you know, became unsustainable and, and, and led to the uh, crisis that, that we've become familiar with. Um, for China, this was a moment of epiphany. They had thought that the USA would be more competent than this, would have anticipated uh, the risks and done more to uh, prevent them. And the Chinese government, which was hit very hard by this crisis, um, determined that they were never again going to allow themselves to be put in this uh, position. And then the third key date, I would argue, is 2012, which was the date on which Xi Jinping was elected uh, to be the Secretary General of the Chinese Communist Party, together with um, the presidency and the chairman of the Central Military Commission. Um, and although initially um, it was unclear what sort of leader Xi Jinping would be. He wasn't particularly well known, um, even within China. You know, I don't think people really understood, uh, you know, who this person really was. Um, it rapidly became clear that he had an ambitious agenda for China that went far beyond the the, the kind of low key uh, status quo power that China had been for the preceding you know, 20 plus years. Um, and um, you know, we, we, we heard about um, the concept of the China dream. And shortly thereafter, Xi Jinping's concept of um, the community of common destiny, which was a kind of Chinese um, you know, alternative to the so-called rules-based order established by the United States and allies after, after World War II, um, and which is, you know, I would argue, I do argue in the book, is a recipe for um, a kind of Chinese-led world order, but with rather different characteristics from that of the British in the 19th and uh, America in, 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 in the 20th century, and we can talk, uh, talk more about that. But Technology has also you know, uh, played an important role in turning uh, China into a major global intelligence power. 
um, something that uh, I address in the book, um, in which I argue that the scale um, and extent of China's uh, intelligence operations now, largely enabled by modern technology, um, is becoming a strategic phenomenon in its own right and needs to be looked at you know, in a different way from, from, from how espionage has been uh, traditionally looked at. And by the same token, in the book, I also look at the way in which China has become what I would call a techno-security state, the way in which it is using um, a suite of, of technologies, um, you know, um, monitoring of um, online communications, pervasive use of um, video cameras uh, linked to artificial intelligence systems able to uh, undertake facial gate recognition, um, um, not just within China, although there, you know, um, is where we see it, uh, you know, sort of most most prominently, including in Xinjiang, where it, you know, we, we, which has served as a test bed for for many of these technologies. But increasingly, in terms of China's um, efforts to exercise control over the Chinese narrative beyond China's borders. Uh, and that is something, you know, the, 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 the book um, also um, looks at. Um, I don't think anybody, even China's leadership, expected China to get as far and as fast as it has. And this has undoubtedly uh, created a lot of concern uh, within uh, the United States and you know, in, in, in the Western liberal uh, democracies uh, more broadly. And we saw this in terms of um, the uh, Donald Trump initiated trade war in 2018, uh, which rapidly transformed uh, or extended rather into a technology war uh, the, the, the primary purpose of which appeared to be to constrain China's own technology ambitions and to create a breathing space for the United States to catch up in areas such as fifth generation mobile technology, where it hadn't really lagged behind because most of the tech fundamental technologies um, to do with 5G are, were American. But where the USA had fallen behind was in its lack of ability to manufacture key components of 5G systems, such that you know, no US company uh, was, was able to, to, to put together an end-to-end -end, uh, 5G system, which effectively left the field open for China to make a bid to become globally dominant in, in, in this technology. And we're now seeing uh, China making a similar bid to achieve um, um, control of global standards in a range of uh, technologies in artificial intelligence, quantum computing, you know, biotechnology, et cetera, et cetera. Because of course, China is acutely uh, aware that um, given its size and the scale on which it is able to operate, no other country would be able to compete with Chinese commercialization of, of, of these new technologies once um, they um, achieve um, uh, maturity. 
So the key question, two key questions, and I'll end after this because I'm, I'm, I'm running towards the end of my allotted time. Firstly, you know, who's on top when it comes to technology? You know, where, 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 you know, where are the respective uh, strengths and weaknesses of, of the two different systems? And it's very difficult to tell, not least because China tends to oscillate between periods of uh, what I would characterize as techno exuberance um, and periods when they are at pains to downplay the extent of their uh, achievements vis-a-vis uh, -vis the West. Um, but broadly speaking, I would say that where China has excelled to date has been in the ingenious application of and development of existing technologies that they themselves did not create. And actually, when you look at the history of technology, this is not uh, you know, a secondary or, 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 or trivial uh, uh, consideration. A lot of the you know, important um, developments in technology come in the form of incremental improvements once the fundamental technology breakthrough has been achieved. But it is the case that China is still very weak on foundational science relative to the West. I mean, China has virtually no Nobel Prize winners, and he's got one actually in, in, in the hard sciences. And that's a lady who made some discoveries in relation to malaria quite a long time ago. Um, and this is something that a lot of commentators in China um, you know, uh, remark on, um, you know, the, 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 this um, um, lack of, of strength um, in, 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 in foundational science. Um, the other advantages China has got, I would say, are twofold. One is this very, very focused and concentrated um, state effort to develop uh, a leading position in key technologies involving enormous financial incentives um, and other you know, um, incentives to entrepreneurs uh, to, to, to um, take risks in, in, in developing these technologies. And the other one, of course, which is particularly pertinent in, the, in relation to artificial intelligence, is the huge volumes of data that China is able to generate, um, which you know, taken together with the huge volumes of Western data that China is currently in the process of stealing, um, potentially give it uh, quite an important edge in areas like um, artificial intelligence um, and uh, other areas such as uh, biotechnology. Uh, so what's happening now? And this brings me to the title of the book and my kind of final point, The Great Decoupling. Is this a thing? Well, you know, I, you know, if I didn't think it was a thing, I wouldn't have called my book by that title. And I think it clearly is. Um, and you know, we're, we're seeing now um, you know, a, a move um, by uh, Western governments, at least, to try to disentangle some of the very, very um, um, tight connectivity with China that has emerged um, over the years. Um, in the case of America, they're not always um, you know, the, the, um, um, what the government and what Congress wants and what the private sector, in particular Silicon Valley, wants um, are two different things because there are many in Silicon Valley who are heavily invested in continued engagement and collaboration with China and very reluctant to accept any need uh, to decouple either because they're making lots of money out of the Chinese market or because they are so genuinely imbued 
with the uh, original ideals that attended the um, development of, of, of the internet. I mean, some in Silicon Valley, Eric Schmidt, um, for a case in point, um, has begun to accept the need to recognize the um, shifting uh, strategic tectonic plates and is arguing for some selective uh, decoupling um, from China. Other respected academics, um, Aaron Friedberg, a case in point, has made you know, similar arguments. It is happening. It's not happening in a planned way. It's not easy to identify where this is going to end. Um, and I suspect it probably doesn't ever really have an endpoint. It's going to be very, very messy. But if decoupling does um, gather momentum, um, then you know, I think that there are you know, sort of serious implications for uh, the world more generally in terms of what I anticipate as being uh, a general diminution in, um, in, in, in you know, creativity and, and the generation of new ideas and new technologies and also um, a reinforcing of ideological divisions and distrust if, as could potentially happen, we end up with a world that is divided between a Sinosphere and um, a sphere dominated and controlled by um, the USA and uh, uh, like-minded countries, with a lot of third countries um, placed in an unenviable position of maybe having to choose uh, between one or the other, or operating both systems with all the additional costs and complexity that uh, that, that um, entails. Um, I'll leave it there uh, because you know, I more or less you know, used up my allotted uh, time. Um, I've skated uh, very fast over a lot of thin ice, and I'm sure that people will want to um, investigate uh, more deeply um, in a lot of the areas that I've uh, covered uh, um, inevitably in a very um, superficial way, but which the book goes into in a lot more detail. So please read the book. Exactly. Thank you, uh, Nigel. Uh, and uh, I have some questions and those uh, of our audience on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and on Zoom. On Zoom, if you want to ask a question, please write your question to Q&A box. And if you are following us through Twitter, uh, please write your question through comments so that my assistants can collect those questions and give it to me. And my, my question, Nigel, I have a set of questions, actually. The first one is, isn't this one of those moments that the US had lived before so like, just like Sputnik moment that you talk about yeah. 1960s and just like 1980s when there was this concern about rising Japanese technology even there was I remember Michael Crichton has this novel called Rising Sun in yeah. which electronic there was this uh, competition between Japan and United States on yeah. the control of international electronics industry mm -hmm. do you think we are living you know like the again one of those times and do you think in both instances, the uh, alarmism after Sputnik, for example, was the decline of the US? And we had similar debates in 1980s when Japan was writing about the decline of the US and this Japanese threat. 
are we living the same uh, moment? And do you think some people mm. are overreacting to uh, Chinese technological developments? No, to, to the last part of your question, I think the answer is yes, very much so. Um, I mean, we're seeing now, you know, a, a, a lot of uh, um, books being written um, by by people with not a lot of background, um, you know, in, in, in presenting this uh, situation in in in, in kind of very uh, alarmist terms, and and I, and I tend to think that um, it probably won't be that bad. Uh, but but there are a couple of factors that you know that, that potentially make it different. Firstly, we have you know, um, well, I mean, you know, let, let's just say that you know the the, the, the Chinese communists, um, you know, um, being of necessity historical determinists, um, have concluded that um, the West, the USA, and um, and the West more generally is in terminal decline and that the tide of history is now flowing in China's direction. You know, the, 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 you, know you, you see a lot of articles now um, in Chinese language uh, intellectual circles that tend to begin with the words, you know, um, um, uh, the East is rising, the West is declining or, or worse to that effect. Um, there are those within China's intelligentsia who are aware of uh, US uh, capacity for self-renewal and regeneration, which, you know, to cite the examples you just mentioned, has uh, been, been, been evidenced uh, uh, um, before. So, and, and, and you know, one should not lose sight of the fact that uh, the United States has uh, very strong uh, incumbent advantages in terms of uh, the technologies that, 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 that we are talking about. But it also does have some vulnerabilities which need to be addressed. And these have been seized upon, uh, certainly by the Biden administration. I know people like Jake Sullivan, who I've heard you know, talk, talk, talking on these issues, is acutely aware of the importance uh, for the USA of things like developing uh, the country's human capital on a more systematic basis, um, working to ensure that the country's uh, um, basic infrastructure is uh, kind of up to speed, and we see you know, a lot of work being done in Congress now you know, to, to, to address all of this. But the thing about China is that you know, everything to do with China is that its size makes it different. Um, Japan in the 1980s, yes, was uh, you know, a, a, a commercial competitor for you know, the United States. Um, but at the same time, it was also uh, very much under the U.S. security umbrella, um, and, and, and was not, um, you know, um, a, a strategic actor um, in the defense uh, and security spaces. China is, uh, and you know, uh, China's uh, military modernization um, and intelligence modernization uh, have been hugely driven by uh, by technology to the point where militarily uh, China has to be taken seriously as, as a peer competitor uh, with the United States. Now what, what, what that means in practice is hard to, to, to know. An optimistic uh, reading of this situation is that um, you know, both 
countries will recognize that their respective military capabilities effectively cancel each other out. You know, the, the, the nobody can be, you know, can hope to be militarily dominant, or that, you know, the, 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 the costs of warfare are so great that um, it is, you know, simply not a rational option uh, to pursue. Against that, you know, I would say we've been here before, World War I, uh, Norman Angel, um, who argued that a war between uh, Britain and Imperial Germany was unthinkable because of the economic damage it would cause. Well, yeah, um, and we know how that ended. Um, um, but, um, you know, also um, because, you know, of, 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 you know, I mean, I've not been a particular proponent of the Thucydides trap, uh, Graham Allison's Thucydides trap, but, you know, Thucydides did make the point uh, in his Peloponnesian Wars that the drivers of warfare are fear, honor, and advantage, forvus ketimis keophilus. Um, so, so, you know, there, there are plenty of uh, 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 reasons to be, be concerned that, you know, a, a, a contest between uh, China uh, and the United States for uh, global dominance has the potential to turn kinetic. And, and that to me is, you know, is a real worry that, that, that we have to be, 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 be alert to. Thank you. Nigel, and uh, I have some other questions, but I started to ask some of the audience question. I have mm -hmm. one question about the surveillance technologies and yes. the export of surveillance technologies by China to other countries. Mm -hmm. The question is, do you think Beijing attempts to spread its own form of regime to other parts of the world, or do you think it is mostly an economic enterprise? Yeah, well, I think the answer is it's both. Um, it's certainly you know, done for economic purposes, but it also has a broader geostrategic uh, purpose. Um, and that you know, by providing uh, a lot of countries, particularly in the developing world with uh, Chinese um, uh, systems, whatever these, uh, these may be, um, firstly, you know, obviously that you know, this provides uh, uh, China with uh, um, espionage opportunities. Um, but also it um, provides China with um, political um, leverage. Um, and also it's seen within the context of the Belt and Road Initiative, this huge plan that China has to uh, create um, um, uh, uh, land, sea um, and you know, air networks uh, linking the rest of the planet to, 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 to Chinese markets. That providing uh, states, uh, you know, that, that are key players um, in the Belt and Road Initiative, with uh, Chinese systems, including all, all the surveillance capabilities that that, that, that come um, with those, um, potentially enables China to have the Belt and Road kind of policed on the cheap. You know, China's looked at the U.S. model of global hegemony: 800 uh, military bases dotted around the globe. You know, no, thank you. We don't want that. Uh, they've looked at the British model: uh, colonies uh, all over the place, very expensive, and 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 and, and uh, you know, carry enormous vulnerabilities. Don't want to go there either. So I think what they're looking at is 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 a system where essentially uh, China. To the extent possible, can subcontract 
to um, the relevant states the responsibility for securing um, the Belt and Road. Um, also, of course, um, just as happened with the British in the 19th century when the world was uh, wired for telegraphy by the British company Cable and Wireless and by the USA in the 20th century with uh, the, the, the internet, um, providing uh, this, these technologies uh, does uh, offer all sorts of um, advantages, both uh, um, tangible and um, you know, more intangible, uh, to, to, to the country that is providing them. And uh, my question is about the Biden administration and you uh, reminded Jake Sullivan and his interest actually to mm. these issues. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the first time that United States had a, has had now Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technologies. Yes. And uh, my question is, in your book, uh, you mentioned that U.S. has no strategy for decoupling, uh, mm. although there was a trade war, and trade war is mostly, uh, down Trump's period, trade war was mostly, I guess, about the trade surplus and trade deficit and how to sell more than we buy from China. So uh, the question, do you find the President Biden's uh, investment to infrastructure, his plan to invest infrastructure and uh, his policy so far of course it is only it has been only 100 days now sufficient to deal with china's technological challenge well that, that's a very good question and one that's extremely difficult to answer i mean you're absolutely right the the the, the uh, you know donald trump's trade war you know had an important effect in so to speak calling a halt to China's ability to play the international system without being called to account. You know, the, 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 you know Trump's activities did have the, uh, you know, ha have, have that effect. And it's noteworthy that the Biden administration has not sought yet to reverse any of the major initiatives um, in relation to China that, 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 Trump, uh, that, that Trump took. But, um, you know, tr uh, Trump's trade war uh, I don't think really achieved um, its uh, succeeded in, in in its own terms in that it didn't reduce the trade deficit. It didn't bring back manufacture to the United States, um, and you know it, it it didn't actually in many cases benefit uh, the U.S. Uh, um, agricultural sector. Um, and it, it essentially, I think you know what what Biden is doing is you know I think. Um, a continuation of the Trump agenda of getting tough on China's perceived infractions, but also, but, but, but within the context of a more, shall we say, coherent uh, strategic uh, concept, recognizing that the USA can't do this alone, it's got to work in, con in, in conjunction with partners, focusing on addressing uh, the uh, US vulnerabilities that China itself has been so adept at, uh, at exploiting. Now, whether this is um, in itself going to be enough to um, achieve, um, well, you know, objectives which haven't really been, you know, I, I would argue that well articulated is, it, you know, remains to be seen. And you know, my, my concern is, my concern here is less about the technology, it's, it's less about investment. I think my concern is more about, you know, has the Trump administration actually recognized the extent to which 
global power has been diffused to the point where um, Biden's aspirations for the USA to resume its traditional leadership role may no longer prove to be realistic. I think that, you know, that to my mind, is, is, is the bigger question. The money's there if they choose to use it. The technology's there if they choose to develop it. But I think, I, I suspect that the geopolitics have shifted in ways that uh, um, may not yet have fully been appreciated by those, uh, those um, in charge um, in, in, uh, of the Biden administration. Thank you very much. And there are two questions. I want to connect those questions together. Long questions, but I will try to summarize mm -hmm. them. One of them is uh, Biden. Uh, Biden and his foreign policy team keep talking about building, rebuilding alliances mm -hmm. or strengthening alliances. Do you think mm -hmm. strengthening alliances can work in technology as well? And mm -hmm. the second question was somewhat related. Because of that, I want to add it. Where does Japan and South Korea stand in this competition? Yes. Well, both these questions, I, I, I think, essentially go to the point that I just made, that uh, I'm not sure that the, the conditions necessarily exist for the USA to um, resume its uh, traditional leadership role in the way that we have uh, come to be familiar with. And technology, I think, is an interesting uh, case here. We saw in 2020, um, the uh, US government um, uh, put enormous pressure on the United Kingdom uh, to um, exclude the Chinese company Huawei from its uh, incipient uh, 5G networks. Uh, the, the UK had what I regard as a perfectly coherent and technologically workable plan to allow Huawei limited participation in the edge of the 5G networks. Um, but uh, that, 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 that was kind of steamrolled by uh, a US administration that was determined to uh, kind of enforce uh, conformity. You know, and I made the point uh, to, to, to American friends that if the US government you know, really does want to um, exercise a kind of leadership role, uh, when it comes to Chinese technology, it is going to have to be willing to countenance a degree of variable geometry um, that, 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 that you know, it won't find easy or comfortable to deal with. You know, that, that, you know, ordering uh, allies um, and, and other potentially friendly countries to, to, to um, cut off uh, dealings with uh, China um, may simply not be realistic. You know, every country has its own uh, relationship with China. Every country has its own uh, needs in relation to China. And the idea that one can you know, impose any kind of uh, uh, uniform approach um, in, in this context, I think it, it, you know, is, is unrealistic. So I think that, you know, I, I would argue that if the UK, US wants to be um, successful in this arena, it is going to have to accept the reality that in some areas, Chinese technology will likely predominate globally, and we will need to live with that. And people like Eric Schmidt um, in Silicon Valley, who've, you know, who, who, who co-authored uh, a recent report on the subject, um, argue exactly that. You know, there, there, there are some you know, situations where 
we're going to end up using Chinese technology, guys. Get over it. You know, learn to live with it and mitigate the uh, uh, associated risks. Um, and so when it comes to Japan and Korea, both uh, um, in their own way, uh, strong US allies, uh, but uh, not as between themselves, perhaps the, the closest of friends, shall we say, um, managing this is, you know, is, is going to be um, extremely difficult for precisely these reasons. I mean, Japan is itself becoming more concerned about uh, China's rise um, and is um, increasing its efforts uh, to hedge against um, you know, a, 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 an increasingly um, dominant and regionally and globally powerful China. Um, but at the same time, um, Japanese government uh, has to contend with a population that still has very strongly pacifist uh, inclinations, does not want to uh, go down the route of uh, a, a more antagonistic uh, relationship with China. Managing that is, is, going, to be, um, is, is going to be very difficult. Of course, for, for Japan, Japan, bizarrely, for, for, for all that it is one of the world's most in, you know, advanced industrial economies, has been something of a laggard when it comes to information communications technology. The internet, they've been very, very slow um, in, you know, in, in adopting the internet and you know, all, all the technologies related to it relative to, you know, to, to, to many other countries. South Korea, on the other hand, um, has become um, an advanced, you know, a, a producer of some, of some of the key inputs to advanced technologies. In particular, um, you know, the the, the um, um, very advanced um, uh, microprocessors that, that, that are key to to a lot of advanced uh, technical and industrial uh, applications. I mean, you know, it, it, and it is a bizarre situation where these capabilities, um, you know, I'm talking about the production of uh, microprocessors in the, you know, sort of 11 through to five nanometer production mode um, are concentrated in two places, Taiwan and South Korea. Uh, both um, countries, um, shall we say, not exactly um, far away from the epicenter of uh, uh, geopolitical tensions. My question is, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, Russia as the major disruptor because mm. the, uh, the interim national security strategy uh, of the US, which was released uh, a month ago, mm. also called Russia a major disruptor in mm. world stage. So yeah. uh, where do you, uh, in competition, technology competition, where do you put Russia? Yeah. This is well, now I mean, one of the most significant questions in geopolitics as well. How yeah. about in technological competition? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, obviously Russia, you know, is in, in many senses, it has to be considered a, a, a major cyber power. But in contrast to China, uh, Russia has never you know, succeeded in commercializing its um, expertise. I mean, nobody's going to buy, you know, a Russian-designed uh, uh, operating system, you know, or, 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 or a Russian-made computer. Um, and and uh, Russia's you know, own um, networks you know, are actually, you know, uh, surprisingly 
um, weak and vulnerable. Um, but what we do see is that um, you know a, a lot of the world's uh, malware does originate in Russia. I've seen figures estimating that it's as high as 80% uh, of, of the total. And if we look at Russia's activities in the cyber domain, um, what we see is um, in large measure disruptive um, operations, whether espionage, whether sabotage, uh, whether uh, influence operations designed to uh, destabilize uh, states. Uh, and, the, you know, that, the, and that is where the, the, the focus lies. You know, we've, you know, um, in Russia, we see um, a, a, um, a coexistence, a symbiosis between uh, organized criminal groups and the state um, in which uh, the, the, these criminal groups are, are given leeway to operate, provided they don't operate within Russia, and, also, and, and provided also that they make their capabilities available to the state as and when required. So, you know, and, and from a geostrategic perspective, Russia is a country that has come to see its own security as a function of everybody else's insecurity. Um, and, 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 and to that extent, um, you know, the, the, the more that it can keep um, major competitors and adversaries off balance, you know, the, the safer it feels. And this is where we see um, you know, so, so much of uh, uh, Russian activities being focused. Nigel, too. Well, Russia is never going to shape the international agenda in terms of technical standards, um, in, in the way that China aspires to do and, 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 and quite plausibly might. Nigel, in your previous experience, how did you assess the uh, attacks, cyber attacks, the threat of cyber attacks? Were, there ex were they extremely dangerous, especially the two cyber attacks in the last mm. couple of months in the United States cons uh, generated a lot of reaction by the US administration? By the multiple times talk about the solar winds, the mm. uh, Russian-based uh, cyber attack to the U.S. and another one, uh, I think, based on China. Mm. How dangerous were these for the national security of the U.S. and Western countries? Well, I mean, obviously, the, these were very significant attacks. But I think again, we need to to, to get them in context. You know, solar winds was essentially an intelligence gathering operation. Mm. It wasn't designed to, um, uh, to, to, to carry out sabotage. It wasn't you know, a covert uh, influence operation. It was there to collect intelligence. And it was you know, targeted against what one might term traditional um, national security targets. So you know, by my standards, it was you know, within the realms of what has to be considered acceptable given that everybody does this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, this, the, scape, this, the scope and scale of it was um, different, uh, went further perhaps than the originators uh, had intended. And the full extent of the damage caused by solar winds, I think, is still to be, uh, to, 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 to be determined because you know, we're talking here about a, a security um, operating system, which is uh, widely used by, by a lot of uh, uh, major players uh, in the United States. 
and particularly when it comes to private sector actors, I, I think it's still unclear how you know how extensive the damage is. The Microsoft attack, you know, um, again, you know, were, 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 was um, you know yes, clearly very damaging. Um, it um, you know it exploited um, you know, um, known vulnerabilities in uh, Microsoft um, you know, operating system. Um, and again, you know, the, the, the damage you know, um, uh, from that attack has yet, I think, to be, to, 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 to be fully assessed. So you know, these, these attacks are potentially worrying, perhaps less because of, of, of the actual damage they do than because of the perceptions that they create um, and the risk. You know, I mean, you know, a lot of these activities um, you know, can, can be lumped together in you know, what is variously referred to as gray zone activities or activities um, that fall beneath, beneath the threshold of the law of armed conflict. But with these activities always comes the risk that the perpetrator may add, you know, inadvertently cross an adversary's red line without realizing they've done so and hence inviting um, an escalatory retaliation. And I think, you know, the, the, you know um, um, activities on this scale you know, bring us closer to 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 that point um, and so I, I you know I do feel that uh, you know the, the the time has come um, for for states to start thinking you know to to, to you know, start reassessing uh, the utility of, of, of some of these activities um, because you know the, I, I would argue there is a growing risk that they um, may well um, end up, you know, um, creating more problems for the perpetrators than they had, uh, you know, anticipated or would have been willing to, to, you know, to, to, to risk. Thank you very much. Nigel, we have a lot of questions, but uh, we are out of time. So it has been now more than an hour. Uh, and apologies for those who uh, ask uh, different questions that I couldn't add, uh, I couldn't ask. Uh, thank you for your time, Nigel. And uh, again, congratulations for this great book. And uh, hope to see you again in our events. And thanks for the audience for following us. See you in next book talk. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much.